Everson Cooper podcast. We are entrepreneurs that are interested in what makes people successful. In this podcast, we sit down with a wide range of people with diverse perspectives and backgrounds. We dive into the obstacles that they've had to overcome, their successes, unique experiences, and everything in between. Our goal is to continuously learn from those around us and share their knowledge so that we can all find something that makes us better and makes those around us better. We hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, on the podcast today we have Bob Milner. Elizabeth and I are incredibly grateful Bob was generous with his time and sat down to speak with us. This guy has a lifetime of experiences from corporate leadership to small business to teaching to military service to philanthropy and everything in between. He has a lot of different successes to share and the journeys that go along with them. He also has some of the not-so-successful experiences that any driven, accomplished, and distinguished person can and will experience along their path. He sits on the board of several different nonprofits. He's an investor in several highly successful businesses, is the former co-owner of Mercedes-Benz of the Woodlands. He does business consulting and is also an adjunct professor of business at Lone Star College. Guys, this is just what he has done the last several years. We'll get into a lot more as well. So without further delay, please enjoy our conversation with Bob Milner. Bob Milner, thank you for joining us on our podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about it. I've followed your podcast and of course, you know, we see each other at a lot of business and leadership and networking events and I'm excited to have the opportunity to sit down and talk with you. Good. Good. Yeah, uh, very excited to have you. Um, we've gotten to know each other now over the last several months. Uh, learned a lot about what you uh, are are doing uh, and have done. Incredibly impressive. Um, let me catch my breath here so I can go through some of your um, you know accolades or, or whatever that you that you've um, been involved with. So seven years as decorated airman in the U.S. Air Force. Uh, Thirty years involved with uh, luxury automobile operations. Um, you're now doing consulting with Turbo uh, Consulting. We'll, I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about that. You're also currently an adjunct business professor at Lone Star College. Uh, you have your MBA. I believe you have your, your PhD as I well. I do not. I'm about halfway through it. Okay. Yeah. So, you're, so you're on your way to getting your PhD. Uh, you're co-owner of Mercedes of the Benz, Mercedes-Benz of the Woodlands. You're recognized by Ernst & Young. Uh, as a finalist for the Gulf Coast uh, Entrepreneur of the Year. You also received Mercedes-Benz uh, Best of the Best Award, which is an incredibly prestigious award. You're on the board of, gosh, I think a half dozen, <laughs> if not more, um, uh, 501c3s. Uh, I know that you're an incredibly philanthropic person as well, not only just serving on the board, but donating your time, your money, your, your resources uh, to countless um uh, nonprofits in the woodlands and, and uh, a lot of different places, um, and you're you're a serial entrepreneur. You have a new uh, endeavor, uh, virtual reality endeavor that I'm sure we'll have a chance to, to talk about. Uh, but one of the things I, where I want to start is something I didn't mention, and this really caught my attention because, as as you know now, we we're a dog owner and dog lovers, and you're involved with um, Houston Houston Animal Rescue Team Heart. And so that's you guys are located in Tomball, and so have a chance. I want to I want you to talk a little bit about that. I want to start there. I want to um, see how did you get started with that? Are, have you always been an animal lover? Always been involved with animals? Wow! So I never even owned a pet until four years ago. <laughs> so four, four years ago. Four wow. years ago. Okay. So when we lived, 
we lived here before. We moved away with our jobs. We ended up spending 11 years in Southern California before we moved back here. And I, Teresa, my wife, traveled with her job a lot. But she always wanted a dog. And I said, well, you know, when we move back to the Woodlands this time, you're not going to be traveling. We'll get you a dog. So, you know, she did research because she wanted something that's hypoallergenic because I'm allergic to cats. Um, she wanted something that was small. So if we were going to go on a road trip, it could go with us. Mm -hmm. She did all this research. We didn't know about animal rescue, shelters, humane societies. We knew nothing about any of that stuff. So, you know, she does what every person who doesn't have any clue what they're doing does. She called who she thought was the expert on it. And so she called American Kennel Club and said she was looking for a responsible breeder. And she had like three breeds she was interested in. They gave her some names here. So during this process, we kept thinking about, well, what do we want to name her? Because we wanted a female because we didn't want a little dog puppy establishing its territory all over our house right? <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> so uh we you know we thought about names we bought a baby name book and did all oh kinds goodness. of research so we came up with this name sadie middle name grace because that was her grandmother's name okay. and so the name would be sadie grace so then she did all this research on the internet and i had already moved here and had gone to birmingham to help my partner with an acquisition that he was making there so she's doing all this work, and so she finds some people. She calls and talks to them about their dogs. Long story short, the week that we closed on our house in Huntington Beach, we got on an airplane and flew here right after the movers had put the last, crammed the last piece of junk in the moving van. We landed at Houston Intercontinental, and we drove straight from there to Baytown in a horrific thunderstorm and road flooding to go look at the dog. Mm. <laughs> so we get there. They live on the bay. I mean, it is pouring. We sat in the car for a little while. I said, well, we may as well just go on in. It's not going to stop raining. So they came out and waited for us to go into this uh, building they had next to their house. And it was a really nice building, and it's where they let the moms and the puppies live, you know, after they had uh, had puppies. So we go in there, and and we come in, we talk to the lady, and she has two little white fluffy things sitting in this little pen. And Teresa says, well, you know, we need to find one you're going to be happy with. So, you know, why don't you interact with them? So they put this little plastic circular thing down, and I sat in it, and she, this lady put both of these little, you know, two-pound things in there. One of them ran around like you had shot it with adrenaline. It was running, jumping on me, barking. It was going ballistic. The other one just kind of sat over there and looked at me, and I was sitting, you know, with my legs crossed, and eventually it came over. I put my hand down. It licked my hand, started crawling up my legs. It fell over into my lap no. and just laid there. I'm like, are you kidding me? We have to take this one yeah. on, right? <laughs> so she goes, well, that's cool. She goes, by the way, that one's name is Sadie. And I looked oh at her, and I goodness. said, this whole thing was rigged, wasn't it? <laughs> she goes, what do you mean? I said, well, that's the name that we picked out for the dog. And she goes, well, it's not its real name. We just give them names for the website because, you know, you have to register it with AKC. And I said, yeah, I think you and my wife have been working on this thing longer. <laughs> she goes, no, no, I promise. Wow. So we took Sadie home. She was going to be Teresa's girl, right, her baby. So we were going to, you know, kennel raise it, do everything perfect dog parents do. The first night it's crying and then it's little kennel and ball. And so like at 1 o'clock in the morning I got up, picked her up, went in the family room, Put the recliner back and 
next morning, Teresa comes in and she shakes me. She goes, what are you doing? I'm laying there. I'm sound asleep in the recliner on my back. Little Sadie's in the crawl of my arm on her back, her legs in the air, and she's sound asleep. I said, well, she was crying. I didn't want her to wake you up. She goes, well, they're going to cry for several weeks before they get used to being in a kennel. I said, okay. So for some strange reason, the company Teresa had worked for asked her if she'd go on one more road trip to help them with an acquisition. So she had to go to Portland. So she was gone. So now I have Sadie. So I said, well, I'll just put her in the bed. Teresa will never know, you know, when she gets back, right? <laughs> so I put her in the bed, and I put her toy in there in her blanket, and she snuggled up next to my pillow, and she slept right next to my neck every oh night. Gosh. So Teresa comes home, and we put her in the kennel, and she is bawling. She goes, what have you done? <laughs> so, you know, Sadie, so I, at that time, my office was in my home because we hadn't even started breaking dirt yet. So, you know, I put it little dog beds all over the house and I had one in my office and I bought her this little two-story dog house because she liked to stand up and try to look out the window <laughs> and I built steps for it so she could climb up on top and sit there and look out the window in the front of her house. So I started taking with her, her with me when I would go meet with potential vendors and contractors. So I got her a car seat for my car and everything. Oh, yeah. She became daddy's girl. Yeah. She would go to the job site with me. Mm -hmm. The people that built the facility knew her you know, she didn't even need a leash. She would walk around, and they would bring treats to give her. So it was like early February. It was really cold and rainy, and she kept going from my office to the front door, crying and barking. So finally I went to the door. I looked out, and I didn't see anything. So she kept doing it. I went out, and in the corner was this little bitty miniature Yorkie, soaking wet, crying. And it had gotten out of its owner's backyard. That led to us getting our next dog, which was little Bella, our miniature Yorkie. So we, I said, you know, we need to get Sadie a sister because Sadie went, I, I gave the little dog a warm bath, I put her in one of Sadie's beds in my office, and Sadie went and got some of her stuffed animals and put them in the bed with this little thing, like she was being motherly to it. And she was only like seven months old, yeah. you know, but she was probably doing what her mom had done to her. Right. So uh, I told Teresa, I said, you know, we need to get Sadie a sister, and here's why. So she says, okay. I said, well, let's get her a Yorkie, just like that Yorkie, because Sadie really liked her. So we start looking, and we find this little Yorkie. We bring her home. thought Sadie was going to kill her. She would jump on her. She would grab her by the back of her neck and shake her. I mean, we were to the point where we were just going to give her to Teresa's sister. And then all of a sudden, one day, they're laying in bed, and they were best friends. And we learned it's because Sadie was letting Bella know she was the alpha dog. Mm -hmm. And this is my place. you got to learn who's in charge, and then everything will be okay. Mm -hmm. So... You know, we started following animal things on Facebook, and then Teresa started seeing posts about dogs that were going to be euthanized and things. And she saw this one dog. It was like a, at the time, 11 or 12-year-old Westie. She was blind. Her owner is dead. The kids were taking care of it. It had diabetes. And she goes, you know, this dog deserves to live the rest of its life out with someone who would love it and take care of it. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay. So we contacted the rescue we uh, drove down to see the dog, and we did all the home visit and everything, and they approved us, so we adopted what became Cookie. That was her name. Aww. She was blind when we got her. She was a Westie, um, but the first week we had her, we took her to see Dr. Rainbow, and yes, that's his name, and he's a world-renowned um, eye surgeon for animals. Oh, wow. Okay. So he was able to do... Uh, he had to remove her left eye because the diabetes not being treated well had dried it out so much that it had rotted. 
but he was able to do lens replacement in the right eye, and so she had perfect vision. Wow. So we had to start giving her insulin shots twice a day and glucose curves, and she was very slow because she had arthritis in her hips. So we found this uh, all-natural organic arthritis treats for dogs. We started giving her that and helped her hips. She started running around. She thought she was a puppy. Oh, so she was our first rescue. And then I got into helping rescues transport dogs from the shelter that they were rescuing to their vets or to their rescues. Mm -hmm. So I did that for several years, probably transported about 2,000 dogs over a three-year period for different rescues. And I had met uh, someone who had a rescue, and she had asked me if I was interested in becoming a partner with her and building a rescue site. So we got together. We bought six acres in Tomball. We hired someone to run it for us, and I think last year we saved about 542 dogs. Wow. Uh, but we train them. The lady that runs it for us is a canine behavioral specialist, so she can handle aggressive dogs. Mm-hmm. We've actually taken aggressive dogs for several of the uh, shelters. They were going to euthanize them, and we've been able to get them trained and back in the system and adopted to families, and they're great family pets now. So now I have five dogs. Oh, and, my goodness. Uh, our most, it's, we're a sucker, so we have five now, and we love it. They're our yeah. girls. They yeah. sleep with us. Aww. They're all tiny. Um, all of my friends, when they come back in their next life, want to be a Milner girl, and all of my <laughs> kids want to be a Milner girl when they come back in their next life because yeah. they constantly remind us that we treat the Milner girls better than we treated them when they were growing up. So that's sort of how I got into the rescue yeah. business. Now, wow. what is the name of the of the rescue again? It's Hart H A R T, and it stands for Houston Animal Rescue Team. Okay. Okay. Now, do you, uh, are, can people go and volunteer and walk the dogs or clean the kennels or anything like that? Can people get involved? Yes, people can volunteer. We encourage that. We have quite a few volunteers. Um, they're welcome to come out and walk dogs. Um, we have employees who help clean the kennels out and stuff, but they can also help us with social work because. We have fenced-off play areas for different sizes, mm-hmm. and we also segregate dogs that have uh, aggression issues. So we train them separately. Um, and our website is, you know, is hart.com. I think that's right. Just go to Google and type Houston Animal <laughs> sure. Rescue Team. Right? Uh, gotcha. And uh, but yeah, it's really cool because when we had the Harvey flooding, we've worked with a lot of agencies in the Midwest transporting dogs to them because they have a very low um, community population of dogs, so their animal shelters don't get a lot of animals. And when Harvey hit, five or six of them brought their boats down and camped out at our facility in Tomball. And every day they would go out to southwest Houston and help rescue stranded animals. Wow. And they rescued cows, um, a hawk. I don't know what happened to the hawk, but a hawk, pigs, dogs, cats. I mean... Whatever it was that was stranded, they would go out with their boats and they would go get them in their boats and take them to the landing areas to give them to, you know, the agencies that were receiving the animals. And uh, they did a, I mean, it was just tremendous what people, they came from Minnesota, Wisconsin, places like that and spent a week and a half doing that. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. So just just right there, if we stopped, <laughs> God bless you. That That's amazing right there. Just, just to, if that's the only thing that you've done, that's really actually incredible. Thank you. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really impacted my life yeah. because, mm-hmm. you know, it's uh, animals have no one to speak for them, sure. right? Absolutely. And they get into tough situations that aren't their fault for whatever reason. And so it's just been really 
empowering to be able to get involved and help yeah. save dogs and cats. So the, the next thing I want to kind of move to is your time in the automobile industry. Uh, I want to talk about that because you spent, what, nearly 30 years, more than 30 years in the automobile industry. So um, kind of talk about how you got started, and then you don't have to give the, the full full recap or full bio, but uh, kind of how your career maybe evolved and because um, you spent time in California with your career. And you're, I guess you're originally from Texas. You're from this area, and now you've, you've kind of moved back. So tell us how you got involved in the automobile industry. Okay. Well, actually, I was raised in Memphis, Tennessee. Okay. And I came here... Uh, when I got out of service, I went to work for a division of British Petroleum and traveled internationally. Um, so that brought me to Houston. And when during that time, the oil and the petrochemical business went through a huge restructuring, and BP wanted me to live overseas. I was recently divorced, had young children. They weren't old enough to fly international. So, you know, living overseas was not an option for me. I had a friend who had a small dealership, and he says, well, why don't you come to work for me? And uh, the big joke was, because he was one of my, you know, he was an attorney also, so I said, well, you know, you kind of have the two worst careers in the world covered. You're a lawyer and you're a car dealer, and uh, that was the running joke. I mean, he was a great guy, and I have a daughter who's an attorney, so, <laughs> but uh, anyway, I couldn't find a job in the States. Everybody who wanted to hire me wanted me to live in Hong Kong or Rotterdam or the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So finally I said, all right, I'll come to work for you until... I found another job, and I fell in love with the business, so I decided I wanted to learn it from the ground up. So I have done valet on the service drive, a service advisor. You know, I've changed the oil in cars, even though I'm not a technician. I have restored many classic cars in my life, but that's a hobby, not a job. I washed cars, detailed them, you know, learned the whole business inside out, and it put me in a great position at a certain point in my career where... I had to work the opportunity to go to work for a large public company at a corporate position and really became engaged on a large scale automotive operations, um, automotive acquisitions, and things like that. And I tell everybody I sort of got a PhD in the car business working for this public retailer because I was introduced to so many different aspects of the business at such a more engaged level that I may never have been had I just stayed working at a local independent automotive mm -hmm. dealer. So with this public retailer, I had the opportunity to really become engaged with acquisitions for them. So I was on an acquisition team. And then part of my career, I spent quite a great deal of time traveling around the country, focusing on turning around underperforming luxury operations. So uh, they would send me into a luxury operation that was underperforming. And what I really learned along the way is... Most of the people that were there already wanted to come to work and do a good job, but they either didn't really have good leadership, there was not very good culture, but they really didn't know what was expected of them. So when they came to work each day, they didn't know how to define success. So I began to understand that if you go in and really create a culture and have something that's focused on accountability and expectations and feedback, that most teams will lead you where you want to go. And I kind of developed a reputation of being able to do that and experience very little turnover in the process and leave a team behind as I would move on to the next project that was more capable than I was of continuing, you know, the success of the team and the dealership. So I did that for quite a few years. 
And then when AutoNation went through a reorganization and I left the company, Teresa and I chose to move to Southern California. She had a job opportunity with the company. She worked there. They would transfer out there. And I had the opportunity to go to work with one of my previous bosses at AutoNation. So that took us to Southern California. And during that time, I really began to focus on understanding the impact that leadership type has on a team and its ability to be engaged and perform. And during that same time, I completed my MBA while I was out there uh, and started working on my doctorate. And then about uh, 2000, early 2014, late, actually late 2013, I had the opportunity to come back here with a gentleman and be a, a partner in opening the new Mercedes dealership in the Woodlands. And, you know, great honor to do that. Mercedes-Benz is one of the top 10 rec- most recognized brands in the world. They really are a true partner with a dealer when you're a franchise dealer. They really see that relationship as a partner as opposed to some manufacturers do with their franchisees. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot working with them, was given a lot of opportunity. Uh, and we really focused very uniquely on trying to create a, a business that was not a car dealership and was not focused on transactions, but we really focused on building a business that we considered ourselves to be a luxury retailer and someone who was focused on building relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we did a lot of things unique to the automotive business, building up the business plan and the team before we opened. We used a lot of profile assessments of people to find people, you know, who had good communication skills, you could understand their communication skills, we intentionally tried not to hire very many people from the car business mm. because we really wanted to be different. I spent a lot of time mm-hmm. studying uh, luxury retailers who had great culture, great employee engagement, great customer engagement, studied Saks, Apple. I've been to the Zappos Leadership Academy, the Apple, the Google, Rich Carlton, the Disney program, and put together a lot of information about what organizations that lead their industry in employee engagement and customer experience, and thus they typically are then overall leaders in that industry too, Mm -hmm. what was important to them. And we narrowed it down to about four and a half pages of things we thought would be relevant and important to us, and that's what we built our business on. And I believe we were quite unique and successful in doing that. Uh, You know, I'm very proud of the team because the culture is maintaining itself. You know, I was never the culture. I was a vision for culture. But mm-hmm. the thing people don't understand about an organization and a team is if the person who is the least responsible person within a team, and in our situation, the person who washes the cars, doesn't exemplify your culture, then you don't have culture, right? So when they when the customer deals with the person that washes their car, if they don't receive that same type of experience they receive with from me as an owner, then you don't really have culture, right? And that was one of the things that we were really proud of is our team really embraced the culture. Uh, it meant everything to them. We did a lot of unique things to help maintain that culture and uh, to recognize it internally. Um, so, yeah, it was a lot of fun. What was, like, one of the... I don't know if you could pick a most important, but maybe one that stands out, something that you instilled in your, like as part of your culture or with your employees that was well-received or you thought was maybe a, a exceptionally beneficial. 
So actually, I think there were two foundational things. Okay. One of them was we created a culture team. Mm-hmm. And they rotated every quarter. Half of the team would rotate off, would rotate off, half would stay on like that each quarter. They were responsible for uh, owning the culture within. So they recognized people that did outstanding things, both internally and externally, and they also represented things that didn't represent our culture. So and and they were the people that would manage culture. So it was managed internally from the team, not from me. Mm-hmm. The other thing was is uh, uh, we came up, my partner came up with this concept, and we sort of called it speed dating, where we sat down every six months with every employee on our team and spent 15 minutes with them, mm-hmm. each one of them, and we asked them four questions. What do you like about working here? What do you not like about working here? What can we do to make it a better place to work? And what can we do to create a better experience for our customers? We would take all of that feedback, we'd put it into a spreadsheet, Every Friday at noon, we would email that spreadsheet out and identify where we were in the process of working on all of the comments and or suggestions that the culture team was focused on one, two, three at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, So I think that, that created a credible relationship to, you know, we set expectations for you. We're going to hold you accountable for them. You set expectations with us. By sending out this, being very open with you and putting everything that was brought up during these conversations on this spreadsheet and sending everything out to you every Friday at noon shows you we're not hiding anything. Mm-hmm. We're up front with you and we're willing to work with you to try to find ways to improve constantly. And I think those were two foundational things. Mm-hmm. And that kind of brings me to one of the questions that I had when you were... Uh, traveling around to different um, organizations or different dealerships or whatever the term was, for to, to essentially to get them back on track. I imagine that there has to be as a good amount of research and you know, digging into the details of what's going on, you know, the the why of the why they're not performing, that team isn't performing. So what what were maybe some of the you know the forensics or some of the things that you guys dug into? And, and, and did it narrow down to, you know, just a couple of things, and that really is, is what your, your foundation was? Or was it almost like a new book that you had to read every single time? No, actually, the quantitative side of it was very easy, the financial, the numbers, the data. It was easy to break those things and compare them because we were a very large organization, to compare them to very similar organizations mm-hmm. in size and identify where opportunity was. In the beginning, I really went in trying to understand what is the right way to figure out what's going on behind the scenes here? So I would sit with every person on the team in my office. Didn't call it speed dating back then, but I would ask them to tell me, you know, tell me what's going on. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you like about working here. Tell me what you don't like about, you know, the very similar questions, right? And I was very fortunate that because I came in from the outside and they were so frustrated, they were willing to spill their guts to me in the beginning. And it began to be a common theme each operation I would travel to. It was a very high percentile of the same things. And so it, it, it all focused around good leadership, mm-hmm. good communication, good accountability, and good feedback. Really, those were the four keys of turning a team around, leading a team. Um, and I really wasn't the person that did it. I was able to have leaders either there or leaders that I brought in who believed in that. So they were really the facilitators of change, right? 
change can be very painful, but you know it's in those times of pain sometimes when we learn the most about ourselves and we grow the most. So it was finding an effective way to lead the leadership team to understand the impact change has on people and do it in a way that was productive. And, you know, I, I look back, as a matter of fact, I had this conversation a couple of weeks with somebody. Of all of that time doing that, I can think of 21 people that were within teams at those times that served with me along that process that now are either owners of their own business, they're leaders of very large organizations, either public or private, and they've gone on to be extremely successful, leading very successful teams because they embraced that servant leadership style, that uh, that path of letting people. If you if you are collaborative with your team with what their goals are, mm-hmm. and you find a way to mend their goals with what your goals are, then it's very easy to let your team take you where you're trying to go. Because mm-hmm. if you're focused on helping them meet their goals and your goals are aligned, they're going to take you where you want to go. You don't really have to focus as much on yours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, when you came back to Texas and you had an opportunity to open Mercedes-Benz of the Woodlands, what did you use to, to draw on, on your experience? What did you use to implement into opening a brand new dealership. You weren't necessarily turning around anything. You were building it from scratch. So talk about talk about that, the challenges, uh, the things that were exciting, and maybe some of the things that were surprising. Like, oh, my gosh, I did not anticipate this. Uh, so maybe talk a little bit about that. So you're right. It was I had actually helped a public company I worked for open new dealerships, but we had a whole team that did a lot of the stuff, mm-hmm. right? This was the first time I ever got to be involved in every facet of it from the ground up, mm-hmm. including being involved in the construction of it and dealing with contractors and everything else. So when I got in, when I got into this, I thought, I wonder what's different about it. And as we began to talk and plan, I realized it wasn't really much different starting it up from scratch than it was going and rehabilitating underperforming teams. The, but the big difference was is people didn't have a, a already have a negative feeling or idea mm-hmm. when we started. Many times that's what I walked into when I went in to work with a team that existed. So we started out positive from the beginning. So we didn't have to heal wounds before we were able to move forward, right? I think the other big thing is is when you have the opportunity to start from the ground up, you can make decisions you're not sometimes you're not always able to make when you inherit a team. Because a true leader is not about turnover. A true leader is about finding the best in people and developing. It's easy to go into a tough situation and fire everybody and try to start over. That's not a leader. That's not what leaders do, right? So, you know, we didn't have that challenge uh, either because we were able to decide the type of people we were going to hire in the beginning. We had a process. We had you know a three-phase interview process, um, different types of profile assessments for different positions. So we were very systematic on how we identified the candidates for our team. And it was it was really almost overbearing about. Ten months, nine months before we opened, I had over 770 resumes and emails from people who wanted to come to work for us. Wow. wow. 
<laughs> yeah. I personally talked to 194 people on the phone and personally interviewed 123 people. And I personally hired about 30-something of the initial 82 team because as we brought on leaders for each department, they took on the role that I was following to begin to identify candidates for their teams. Mm -hmm. I was involved in those at the final stages, but not in the beginning stages. So I remember in my office in my home, you know, I had all of these temporary little files cabinets, file slots for each position. And, you know, there some of them might have five or six resumes and some of them might have 30. And I read every resume and I scored them based on criteria that we felt were important for us for each position on the team. Mm -hmm. That's how we narrowed down who we wanted to give the profile assessments to after a phone interview, and then we would narrow down from there who we wanted to actually meet in public. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time at Hubble and Hudson Kitchen. That was my <laughs> office away from my office because at times I didn't feel comfortable having people come to my home, sure. especially right. if they were female. So there were days where I would be there at 7 and not leave till 8 o'clock at night and see people every two hours all day long. Uh, so I developed a great relationship with both Austin, who manages Hubble and Hudson Kitchen, <laughs> and then Chef Austin, who owns all of Hubble and Hudson, because they saw me there every day okay. for about four months. Right. Well, uh, yeah, I was, I'm curious of how you kept, so you, you talked with, uh, what, several hundred just on the phone? Yeah. Uh, and then you, you uh, interviewed you know, dozens face-to-face, uh, -face. so I'm curious, over that period of time, it was about four months, you said? Probably four to six. Four to six. Of the people that you talked with on the phone, I imagine you had you know, a certain system. I kind of want to dig into that. If you had a checklist or you're just a massive note taker or you just have you know a second brain that you can keep everything in, how did you keep the people straight? So if you needed to go back and you know have your meetings with uh, you know the team to hire and say, look, you know, this, candidate A was really good, candidate B was you know good in this area but not in this area. Talk about, a little bit about how you kept all of that uh, so straight. So we created kind of a, I won't call it a scoring <laughs> criteria, but a criteria of what was important. Mm -hmm. So I created this spreadsheet, and each person I would talk with, I would score them on 1 to 10 of how I felt during the interview they represented certain things that were important to us okay. culturally as an individual. And then if we were looking for people who already had operational experience, that was easy for me to judge, right? And I would score them there. And then as I would interview them on the phone, um, it's weird. I had made the transition from an iPhone to a Samsung at that time. And I fell in love with it because it has a thing called swipe. And I don't know if you're familiar with it, but if you know how to type, you can open up Note on an Android phone and... I'll actually show you. You can't see it on the podcast, but <laughs> trust me, I'm showing them. So you can go into a note, mm -hmm. right? And so if you know how to type, you can say, and you can oh, swipe wow. words wow. Okay. as fast as people can talk. So I would have wow. them on speakerphone, and I would be listening to them, and I would be swiping notes to myself. You know, sometimes you misspell a word, but you can figure it out. Sure. The whole time I was talking to him, I would be swiping. And then I would take that, and I would copy it into a Word document and organize it, and then fix the misspelled words. And those would become my notes from the conversation, and I would put them into a section of the spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. 
Wow. I did this with every person that I either met with or spoke with. Um, so I created a lot of information. And then as I began to I work position by position, I would rank them by total score. And it didn't necessarily mean that the person with the highest score was the best candidate because there might have been someone who didn't have the highest score, but they had really high attributes of something that to me was more important than another attribute, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So then I went back and began to wait to kind of rank people by position. Sure. That was the process. Yeah. What kind of challenges did you have personally or as a leader as you were going through this? Like Josh Cherry always says, you know, he's not the he's not the person he's meant to be yet to, you know, lead the Delta Life Fitness that he wants to lead in, you know, five, ten years, whatever. You know, he's working on that. He's working on that personal development and things. Did you find that maybe you weren't who you were meant to be as you were going through this and you had to maybe develop this skill or read about this or meet with somebody to learn something, I don't know, as you were coming up with challenges? Or do you think that the things that you experienced prior prepared you pretty well for what you were doing and so you were in a good spot for that? So, um, first of all, I'm a huge reader. I read about a book a week. Wow. So, and I read a lot of books on business or self-management, leadership, but also throw in a book every now and then. It's a fun book, military history or something like that, mm -hmm. just to change my brains, refresh it, right? Right. And working on my MBA, I did a lot of research about leadership and culture. So I had, you know, all of those resources I know I probably get about 40 newsletters a week, and I scan them, and I place them in folders about things that I believe are important that I will, might want to go back to. Mm -hmm. So I have this whole filing, electronic filing system. And, you know, I, I, was I the person I needed to be? Not 100%. But I would say, you know, what I focused on was I was focusing on people who had that inherent ability to communicate mm -hmm. and that I believed we could teach how to interact and treat people the way people want to be treated. Mm -hmm. and, and what I mean by that is I, I, I'm invited to speak a lot at a lot of different things and I speak at a lot of luxury business organizations, restaurants, hotels, you know, all kinds of things. And they, one of the questions they always ask me is, well, you know, who did you consider to be your biggest competitor? Was it BMW or Audi or Lexus? And I always look at them and I say, no, honestly, I didn't consider them to be my competitor because, first of all, I wasn't trying to be a car dealer. Mm -hmm. And second of all, I don't believe that they really can effectively compete with the brand of Mercedes-Benz. But in all honesty, you are my competitor, and they would ask me, well, what do you mean? I said, well, since we're building a business that's about relationships and not transactions, then in order for us to create that relationship with our potential customer, we have to give them an experience that is equal to or greater than what their life experience is. Mm -hmm. So our customer base eats in very nice restaurants. They stay in Ridge-Carlton's. They buy their clothes at Saks and Bloomingdale's. They fly first class, stay in nice resorts. If I can't live up to the way they live their life, then I can't give them the kind of experience mm -hmm. they want to do business mm -hmm. with, right? 
because they can go anywhere and buy a car. Right. But most people in that socioeconomic level, it's about trust and relationship. Mm-hmm. So that's what we focused on. So I looked for people who I believe could build relationships. You know, quite honestly, one of the best people I hired was a very shy young lady that was a bartender at Red Robin, and she came out of her shell, and, you know, her customers just loved her, and she didn't know anything about selling, mm-hmm. never sold anything in her life, didn't know anything about cars, you know, but she was great at building rapport and a relationship with mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And in our business, that's what was important because, I mean, everybody walks into a Mercedes-Benz showroom and knows the cars are expensive. Sure. So we don't get a lot of people who come in buying based off of a payment ad they saw in the newspaper. They want people who can walk them through the benefit of owning a Mercedes-Benz, the safety benefits, the engineering behind it, what, how it's going to embrace the lifestyle they live. Mm-hmm. So that's what we look for in people. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So going back to books... <laughs> So one book per week, I thought I was doing good reading like maybe two per month. So, <laughs> so I need to reevaluate my uh, my clip there. Uh, so talk about your what you read, and not just books. You mentioned that you read you know, a lot of articles and you put them in folders. And um, so talk talk a little bit about that. Some of the books. So I guess let's start with books. Okay, let's start there because you mentioned you know, you've read some you know, military history and uh, maybe you you know you read some fiction or nonfiction or whatever. So. Um, talk about some th- some books, and it doesn't even have to be current. Maybe something from you know a long time ago that has been incredibly impactful, and maybe you just you go back to it. It's something that you keep on your bookshelf, and you always look up there and you think, okay, this thing and this thing and this thing. So, talk about maybe a you know however many, but maybe you know three or four uh, books that are just incredibly impactful in your life. So I think one of them is the three questions. Okay. And I don't remember the name of the author. It is a really old book that is not even in publication anymore. So when you buy it, you buy it used. Yeah. And I have, I've bought like 20 copies of it because I like to give it to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have notes in them and highlights, but that's the only way you can get the book. Yeah. And, it, and that book is really focused on what I focus my coaching, performance coaching practice on. And that is understanding your who, your what, and your why in your life or your business, mm-hmm. right? And that's what the three questions are about. So if you can very clearly identify who it is as a business or who it is as an individual I truly want to be, then it's easy to create a roadmap to accomplish that, right? And why is it you want to be that business or that person? What's the why behind who you want to be? Mm-hmm. Because that's what people will embrace is the why. Mm-hmm. And then the what is how you execute it. So that's a very impactful book for me. Um, Leaders Eat Last mm-hmm. is a very good book for me. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that I get into food line last, although I always do when we yes. have an employee luncheon. But it's all—it's more about understanding that a successful leader is understands transformational relationships and understands that leaders don't need to be first. They don't always need to be in front. Um, you know, when I speak, I tell this story about this very rich Texan who had the largest ranch in the world, and he had a pool on it that was about the size of four Olympic pools. And it was filled with man-eating alligators and crocodiles. And people from all over the world would fly in to come to his parties. 
And every time he would have a party, he would say, I'll offer $20 million to anybody who can jump into the pool on that end and make it swim to the other end and survive. Nobody ever, you know, took, it, <laughs> took him up on it. So, you know, years down the road, he's out there. It's 4th of July. He makes this thing. He turns around, and all of a sudden he hears this splash. Everybody turns around, and there's this guy fighting his way with these gators and crocodiles through this pool. He gets to the under, other end. His clothes are shredded. He's bleeding, but he is alive. And the rancher runs up to him, and he says, Oh, my gosh, in all the years I've made this offer, you are the first person who's ever even tried it, and you succeeded. So, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll give you $20 million. I'll give you 25% of my ranch. He goes, I don't want either one of those. I just want to know who the person was who pushed me in at the other end. <laughs> <laughs> the point of that is, is sometimes as leaders, we need to understand when we need to push our team. And sometimes as leaders, we need to understand when we need to let them pull in them. Sure. And that's what Leaders Eat Last is a lot about, right? Mm. So I think that's one, um, you know, the one thing is a book that I've gotten a lot of, especially if I, as I moved into this new phase of my life. I sort of lost focus, and I began to become really busy with doing things that weren't making impact. Mm -hmm. And that's really what I'm trying to focus my life on now is impact. So I had to step back and understand what is the one thing at a time I need to be focused on that's going to accomplish that impact goal. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think that's another one. Um, Geronimo was a really good book. Geronimo was a probably one of the most prolific leaders in the history of the world, if not for sure our country, um, what he was able to overcome as the leader of his tribe and accomplish despite all of the challenges and everything is just tremendous. I've given that book to a lot of people to read. Mm -hmm. um, I read it on an airplane one time flying from Florida to California, and I've probably read it about 20 times since then. Wow. And, uh, you know, just a really significant story about someone who understood what true leadership and sacrifice was about. Mm -hmm. I think those are a few. Those are great. Never read Geronimo. So, you mentioned the one thing, and you've lost focus a little bit. Uh, so, you, so, I guess... Let's let's address you. Have you retired, or, or what's what's your relationship now with Mercedes Benz of the Woodlands? I'm completely retired, okay. out of the business. I have no involvement <clears throat> with it at all. I'm completely out of the business. You know, okay. sold out equity, everything. <laughs> okay, all right. So you're so you retired all all together. Yes. And so now you you essentially uh, got out of that altogether. So you lost focus, and now you, you're kind of focusing on on the one thing. So let's talk about. Where you are now, what are you, what are you doing now? What is your focus? What is your one thing? So when I always planned on when I retired that I would teach college and I would do consulting work. Mm -hmm. And I've taught college for several years um, as an adjunct. Um, so when I retired, I, I tell people like joke that it's like I went on this coffee tour and before I knew it, I had like seven or eight clients. Because people would ask me to go to coffee, and we'd start talking about stuff, and then they would say, hey, well, would you, would you be, willing to, be willing to work with me on that? And I'm like, sure. Before I knew it, I had overcommitted myself based on what I said was going to be important to me individually, time-wise from a management perspective. So I found myself working Monday through Friday from 7 in the morning to 6 at night, and then working on stuff when I'd get home at night. And 
you know, Teresa looked at me one night and she goes, you are the busiest unemployed person I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I said, yeah, I know. So then I began to, um, to really kind of focus in on time management, project management, and, you know, agreeing to do things that I felt like I could really bring significant impact to them either as a person or as a team. And so I really try on making sure that I schedule my private time each morning that's my time where I spend my time with myself. You know, I study my Bible, I have meditation, I keep a journal, I keep a gratitude journal, so I try to focus on those things each morning. I've also tried to develop to where uh, Fridays are just for... um, um, like either networking or if there's not a networking, I try to play golf every Friday. And even if there's networking, like, you know, y'all have your once a month lunch, after that I head straight to the golf course. <laughs> so that's what my Fridays look like. So that's why you show up in shorts. That's right. <laughs> right. When I leave there, I'm heading straight to the golf course. Good for you. <laughs> so I've gotten much better at that focus. Um, and because of that, I've said no to some projects, you know, because um, it didn't fit into what I really believe I want to focus on. Um, so I really feel like I'm in a position right now where the people that I work with or will work with in the future, I'm able to really bring some significant impact to them and help them find a way to create impact also. Mm-hmm. So talk about Turbo. Um, uh, I want to learn more about... Uh, I, I imagine a lot of what you've already talked about is the, you know, the principles and whatnot of um, you know, the consulting. But talk a little bit about that, uh, starting that project. Um, what, is, what, is your, what is your long-term vision for that? So I think, you know, first of all, Turbo is spelled T-E-R, big B-O, and that stands for Teresa and Bob. So, uh, but it also represents something that is accelerated, you know, that's uh, fast, you know, performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I think, you know, right now its focus is helping small businesses or professionals primarily with the soft side of their business. Doesn't mean I don't help some of them with the quantitative or mm-hmm. the operational side, which I do. I have some clients that I only do, you know, operational and financial work with them. Um, I also do some strategic work with nonprofits in the area because I really like to be able to help them. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they ask me to embrace them and help them with things, so I enjoy that. Um, I think ultimately, you know, I've started working on an outline for a book. So at some point I want to find enough time to complete a book. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, I've been, become engaged in some speaking engagements, uh, some that are paid. And so, you know, I've, I've had several of those over the last few months and have some upcoming the balance of the year. I think at some point I'd like to focus in on having, you know, three or four clients that I spend time with helping them really build what they're trying to build. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, find a way to bring... Um, a broader contribution that doesn't have to be one-on-one. Um, I think, you know, that's probably two of the biggest things. Um, I'm still young, you know, so it's not like I'm ready to sit at home and just take naps with my dogs yet, <laughs> although they do enjoy those. Um, and so I think that's, you know, primarily what I'm focused on. I've also have invested in some small businesses locally, giving them seed capital, to get started, you know, I'm a partner in a virtual reality gaming lounge 
um, and that's really a business that another guy and I have um, funded, and we have two people managing it for us. But um, you know, become a partner in a gourmet hot dog stand company. Uh, I'm working on a project. I sit uh, on a Shark Tank at Sound, so their business school gives every year in May they give them the opportunity to create a business plan or take a final exam. So I've had the great opportunity to sit on the Shark Tank up there. And this last May, one group presented a business plan that I was attracted to that I think has uh, is uh, has great potential. Mm-hmm. So I have another investor who we've gone in and we're working with them to see if we can develop this business plan, provide them with seed capital to kick this off. Um, I'm actually in conversations with Sam right now about potentially joining them and as a... Uh, professor of entrepreneurship because they're looking at making that program more experiential instead of academic. And part of that would be, you know, the potential to have the opportunity to create some type of angel capital venture fund to support business projects from graduates, uh, to create a mentoring program with people from our business community here who could be mentors for people that were going through the entrepreneur program building collaborations with corporations and companies for those things. Um, So, you know, those conversations are going on right now. Uh, And if we're able to get everything put together, I believe we'll be able to start that for the spring semester. We're not sure yet if it'll kick off in Huntsville first or if we'll just bring it straight to their Woodlands campus first and kick it off there. But I'm really excited about the potential of that project. Um, So I think, you know, that's kind of what I see my near future focus being. Yeah. Yeah, incredible. incredible. So you talked about Sam Houston State and the Shark Tank uh, there, and you're you're an adjunct business professor. Uh, and correct me if I'm getting my, my language wrong here, but adjunct professor at Lone Star College. I am, yes. Um, so is that always something that you've been that you uh, have have wanted to do? And how long have you been doing that? And talk a little bit about that, about what you enjoy about that, some of the, maybe the challenges of that, and and um, if that's sometimes going to be acts as a refresher from the maybe more professional world where you're working with students. So maybe talk a little bit about your, your experience as being an adjunct professor and what, you wanted, what you're wanting to uh, help Sam Houston State do um, with their entrepreneurial um, uh, program. So I've always sort of had this desire to teach, even when I've worked full-time. So, you know, I taught off and on different classes and different ways. Um, I think my father created that desire for knowledge and learning Mm -hmm. in me very young. Um, He actually graduated from college the same day I graduated from high school. So, and he went on to earn his master's degree and a doctorate. um, He taught when he retired. Um, But I kind of feel like that, you know, I want to give back. And there are so many people going through college that that are looking for leadership, that are looking for a path, that are looking for someone who can help them find their passion. And I really enjoy it because the relationship I develop with, you know, the students in my class is quite dynamic and unique over and above just as a professor because one of the things I get them to focus on along with the path of the course is how in how to take these same concepts and engage them in their personal life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I try to get them to understand the paths are very similar, 
It's just one is business and one is personal. And it's really cool when you see, you know, the glow in their eyes when they begin to see the opportunity and they come and they talk to you about, well, you know, we talked about this two weeks ago and now I'm doing this, you know, at home with my children or, you know, in my church. And to see that they found a way to not only embrace, but take what they're learning and expand it into their entire life. That's the excitement I get out of it. Yeah. So you mentioned your dad. You mentioned he got his... Uh, he graduated from college the same day that you graduated from high school. So let's rewind a little bit. I'm always, I, I think it's always, um, you learn a lot about someone from, you know, essentially where they came from and, you know, their, their childhood and how they grew up and the impact of their, their parents. So you mentioned Memphis, Tennessee. So give us a little bit about of, of your, your, you know, your childhood, your parents, you know, what, what you learned from them, the things that you still in, in your mind, like, I remember my dad saying this, and I've lived like that every single day. Talk a little bit about that. You had to go there, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> so both my parents are deceased. Okay. Um, and my dad married my mom when I was four, so he raised me. I had a great relationship with my biological father, mm-hmm. but, you know, my dad raised me. Sure. Um, he had been an Army Ranger. He came home, and he became a cop in Memphis. Uh, he married my mom. She had two kids. So we were actually fairly poor when I grew up. You know, we lived in an okay part of town. We lived in a three-bedroom, one-and-a-half-bath duplex uh, with four kids and my parents. But, uh, you know, my parents worked their tails off to provide for us, to give us the opportunity in life. Um, and my dad knew the only way he was ever going to build a better life for him and my younger siblings was through education. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he would work all day long. He would go to school. He would work a part-time job to help, you know, make ends meet. And, you know, I just, you know, to me, I didn't really grasp what he really went through at the time, but it, it was fairly significant to me to go to my high school graduation and then later that evening go to my father's college graduation. And then, as I went away to school and in the military and I began to truly understand who my father really was, mm-hmm. it became very impactful for me. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, as we grew up, you know, we didn't have a lot, but we didn't know we didn't. But I, I know there was one thing my dad ingrained and raised in us and that Everybody in life has the opportunity to help someone else. doesn't matter if you're poor or you're the richest. And so, you know, on Thanksgiving, we would go work at the food kitchen at the church before we would go to our grandparents, you know, to have Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, When we would get the Sears catalog, and y'all are probably too young to know what a Sears catalog is. (laughs) It wasn't Google, trust me. You know, we would go pick out one or two things that, quote, we wanted Santa Claus to bring us. But we also, as a group of four kids, picked out one thing we wanted to take to the church that would be donated to some other family. That's beautiful. So, So, you know, my dad really just developed in me this deep understanding of how easy it is to make an impact in someone's life. Yeah. No matter your circumstances, right? So I think that was very impactful to me very young. Um, And, you know, through life, he was a great mentor to me 
when I went through my tough times in life. He helped navigate me through those when I went through good times in life. He helped me learn from them and not let myself get too close to the clouds. Uh, You know, so I had a really good relationship with my father. um, And later in life, we had many very impactful conversations about impact and your footprint. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, I think that's what I would say about it. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yes, very, thank, thank you sure. very much. So talk about your time in the military. Uh, I, I, I don't want to glaze over this. Um, they're, they're, uh, certainly this is... You, when people serve in the military, both my older brothers are in the military, so when people serve in the military, um, it happens usually in a very um, transitional time in your life because you're a young person and then you're usually you're growing into an adult. You're trying to figure out what what life really is like, what it means to be an adult. So talk a little bit about your time in the military. What did you do? What drew you to the Air Force? So it's interesting that you say that because I went into the Air Force when I was 24 years old. Okay. I had gone to school to play baseball, had gotten injured, um, fell in love, got a girl pregnant in college, moved back home. We got married and I got a job, had a good job, but it was just not what I saw as my path in life. Sure. And um, I was playing, you know, amateur baseball, and I met this guy who was a recruiter actually in the Navy, and so we started talking, so I went and took the ASVAB, which is the Armed Services Entrance Exam, and I scored in the 99th percentile, which meant pretty much anything I wanted to do in the service, they would be willing to offer me the job to do. So as I went to look to, to talk to the recruiters, a couple of the services was like, no, you need to t- go talk to the Air Force guy. One of them actually said, you're way too smart to serve in this branch. But <laughs> but he said, you know, the jobs that they have are probably better for someone like you, mm-hmm. right? So I did, and I wanted to fly. I went into the Air Force. I was colorblind, so wasn't able to fly, uh, but had the opportunity to serve for seven years. Um, served in several different capacities, both in um, you know security services, um, training, uh, and then as a contracting officer late in my career. Uh, but I served seven years. It was probably seven of the most impactful years of my life. Um, learned a lot about myself. Learned about self-discipline and discipline. Um, I was uh, actually... While I served in peacetime, I was actually, you know, fairly heavily recognized uh, while I was in, uh, which, uh, you know, I was quite proud of that. Um, had several Air Force Commendation Medals and Achievement Medals, and um, so, you know, I really worked hard to be an example mm-hmm. and to do things the right way while I was in. Um, and I think, you know, it provided me with a platform when I got out because I went to work for someone who I had worked for in the Air Force, who had gone to work for British Petroleum. So that introduced me into that first real career opportunity of my life. And it was kind of like the foundation for beginning to understand who I was, and it gave me that second jump start in life, Mm -hmm. right? Because I always thought I would be a professional baseball player. You know, life happens, and (laughs) I wasn't. But, you know, going into the service really put me on a path to my future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, I'm curious about this. I'm a former baseball player. I played baseball in college. What position did you play? So I was a catcher a and catcher. a relief pitcher. Okay. That's why I've had 
Six knee surgeries. Sure, sure. <laughs> all right, all right. I was I was a pitcher and an outfielder when I didn't, okay. when I didn't pitch. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, so you mentioned your, your morning time. And this is something that uh, I think both of us have learned as we've, we've gotten into our, our 30s and we've kind of understood that, hey, you need to have a, like a daily routine. If you really want to be successful, you need to start your days more purposeful. You know, I think when you're in your 20s, you can kind of get away with stuff. As, as you get older, if you want to be successful, you got to kind of start being more purposeful. So I'm always curious about people. You wake up, you have a purpose, and you talked about your morning time, and you do have a gratitude journal. Um, you spend, you, know, you essentially spend time for yourself. So if you don't mind, uh, talk a little bit about uh, what you do, and then also when did that start for you in your life? When did you, know, you setting aside this time um, for yourself? When did you really start making that a point? So I probably did it. Have done it for about the last twenty five years, okay. off and on. I'd get very good at it, and then I'd let situations get me distracted from it, and then I would go back and realize the importance of it, you know, so it's, I've gone back and forth. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things I learned about it is you have a choice of managing your day and week or letting it manage you. Mm -hmm. And I found that I was not able to really have control of those things unless I took control of myself mm -hmm. and had a plan, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, to me, that's what that time represents. I wake up early every morning and even if I didn't want to, our dogs are up at six, so uh, they would wake me up early. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, so part of what I do is is uh, I read. Mm -hmm. So you know, I get a lot of newsletters. I'll sc I'm a scanner when it comes to things like that. So I'll scan things. I'll highlight them electronically with yellow of things that I believe I want to really. And if it's something I want to go back and read, um, if I'm going to be going on a trip, I may print out. A few of them to read on an airplane, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Or if it's in a magazine, I'll tear out the pages I want to read. And then there are, there are things I really decide are important on them. I'll scan them and save them in my filing system. Um, so that's one thing I do. Um, the other thing I do is I really kind of focus on the day and the next day and then the week. What are the goals I'm trying to accomplish? Mm -hmm. And l look at my schedule and understand you know, where my opportunities for certain things are within that schedule. Um, and I'm getting better at that, especially the schedule part, because I found myself having something to do all day long every day. Uh, my wife says that I didn't realize that no was a word in the vocabulary. <laughs> so I'm trying to learn how to use the word no more often, yeah. or not right now. Sure, sure. Um, and then I, I, I read my Bible every morning. Um, you know, I'm... I'm going through a uh, like a my own private Bible study right now, and it's called Lead Like Jesus. So I'm going through that program myself, um, and then I keep a journal where I document things that are ongoing, what my thoughts are about them. I've kept the journal off and on for about 35 years. Um, I started, you know, documenting it electronically, and it may be the genesis of some of the things I may write in a book about stuff. Mm -hmm. um, my wife came up with a great name for it. She named it the Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, I think it's uh, applicable because like I've really mm -hmm. been blessed and have experienced a lot of extraordinary things in my life. Um, and then I, you know, work on my gratitude journal each day. I try to 
you know, come up with two thing, three things I'm grateful for from the day before. And sometimes the third one may, may just be that I woke up this morning, mm-hmm. right? But I really focus on identifying three things I'm grateful for mm-hmm. every day. And then at that point, you know, I'm, or someone in that point, I may also eat breakfast at the coffee bar while I'm reading something. I'm a habitual, addictive eating reader or reading eater, okay. whichever one you want to call it. Um, even if I'm reading on my phone, you know, it's uh, I'm not a game player. Um, other than my dogs, I'm not a big social media person, but I read constantly. So if I'm eating breakfast, I'm reading. If I'm eating lunch, I'm reading because unless I'm with someone, because I just feel like I'm wasting time if I'm just eat, reading, right? Sure. Okay. And so, you know, I'm constantly reading when I eat. Um, I used to read, you know, about 10 newspapers and about 10 magazines, but now that everything is electronic, it's much easier. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's sort of what the routine is for me. That's good. So there, is there, uh, I've got one more um one more question. I don't know if Elizabeth, you have um, anything else. I guess uh, you've been the first uh, guest on this podcast, and I'll say this: you've been the first guest on the podcast that we've gotten through everything. And so, first, I, I want to thank you for your time. You've, you've been very, very generous with with You're everything. You're welcome. I'm I'm an incredibly curious and interested person in other people. I don't know if you've noticed, um, <laughs> but uh, so so I do want to thank you for that before this gets away from me. Um, is there is there an interesting habit or unique like behavior or something or something that you like to do that people that a lot of people don't know about? And I'm not talking about you know any, any weird dark thing like that. <laughs> Just you know, yeah. you know, I'll give you an example. For me, I put my my right sock on before I put my left sock on. I put my right pant leg on before I put my left pant leg on. It's just it's just a weird thing. It's not a superstition. I just noticed that one day. I was like, I put my left sock on first one time, and I was like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> and so it's just something silly like that. Yeah, so I have a few quirks like that. Okay, sure. Yeah, I do the same thing. Right sock, left sock, right shoe, left shoe. Yep, yep. My right foot goes in the pants before my left foot goes in the pants. Um, yeah, I have some quirks like that. Uh <laughs> Turns out you guys are a little similar. Yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, my wife says I have a lot of quirks, but um, I think I think most wives say that. Yeah, yeah. And she says I'm a creature of habit. Yeah, yeah. I'm fine with eating in the same five restaurants every week, mm-hmm. and you know, sitting in the same. I'll give you an example. When we lived in Santa Monica, I led a dealership there, and I ate lunch every day at a place called the Daily Grill, unless I was going somewhere to meet someone else away. Every day I ate lunch there. At the bar, second chair from the left of the bar. <laughs> I was the father to so many bartenders helping them with their physics, their calculus, their statistics, because they were all aspiring actors, actresses, screenwriters, musicians, and they were working here while they were going to school, and I would help them with their homework. That became the routine. Every day. And where this Daily Grill is, is in the Yahoo Center. Around the Yahoo Center is uh, all of the record companies, HBO, Cinemax. So it is the mecca of entertainment. Mm -hmm. And every day I'd call my wife and say, hey, you know, I'm at lunch. And and I'd say, guess who I'm sitting next to? Every day she would say, Tom Cruise? And I'd say, no, not Tom Cruise. Because I would sit at the bar next to so many celebrities or musicians. And 
many of them, I didn't really know who they were. I just recognized them. And we would have very interesting conversations about great myriads myriads of anything in life. You know, it was just conversation about nothing. Because I didn't want their autograph, and they would just like to have somebody to talk to, right? Mm -hmm. For four and a half years. So when I decided that I was going to move and leave this organization, like a few months before that, I called her one day and I said, guess who I'm sitting next to? And so she said, someone else. And I'm like, nope, Tom Cruise. <laughs> and she goes, you are not. I said, I am. He's two boosts, two chairs down from me. There's not a chair in between us. And, you know, he was very quiet. We said like 10 words to each other. Uh, but the one time she didn't say Tom Cruise was the one time I sat next to Tom Cruise. Um, but it was really cool because I'd kind of become family to everybody who had ever worked there. So when I told them that I was leaving and moving away, you know, my last day at work, they kept saying, now, are you going to come in on your last day for lunch? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, don't worry, I'll be in. I wouldn't miss it, you know. Well, at work, they threw this big going away party for me. And it started at like 10, and it was going on and going on. And finally, I got away at like 1.30, and it says, I need to go down to the Daily Girl. I promised I'd come down and see him before I left. So you would park underground, and you would take an elevator up, and when you got off the elevator, you would walk into the Daily Grill. So when I got on the elevator, they had decorated the elevator. Congratulations, Bob Milner. When I got out of the elevator, they had banners and balloons all the way down the walkway. When I got in, they had my chair that I sat in for four and a half years. They had my name on it. They had balloons on it. And employees who hadn't worked there in three years came back. And they were all there waiting when I came in to eat. And the chef made me... Like little things of every one of my favorite dishes there. Mm-hmm. So he made me like a miniature hamburger. He made me a, a miniature flat iron steak. He made me a miniature cream brulee. There were like miniature macaroni and cheese that he cooked in a skillet. There were like eight things he made for me. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I was like, you know, you go through life and you do the same thing over and over. It becomes a routine. It, you know, you take it for granted and you don't realize the footprint you leave mm-hmm. everywhere you go. And that's when I really began to understand the impact of your footprint. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, there were people that hadn't worked there in three years. There were like seven general managers. Some of them didn't even work for the company anymore oh that gosh. came back to be there at my last lunch. Wow. So it was kind of cool. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow, that's so beautiful. What a neat what a neat story. Yeah. And it's true. Your impact is everything. And you obviously really... Yeah. Really had an impact on all of those people and how beautiful. And Obviously all you were doing was eating lunch. You <laughs> that's know? right. Yeah. That's amazing. Fantastic. I, I think that's a great place to stop uh, understanding the impact of your footprint. Thank you for sharing that story amongst everything else, uh, sharing your time with us. Anything else that you would like to share before before we go? No, I don't think so. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Okay. Excellent. Bob, thank you so much for doing this. All right. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hey everyone, before you go, we just wanted to thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, then be sure to check us out every Wednesday for our latest episode. Visit us at eversoncooper.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes and any other podcast players. Thanks for listening.